Splinters is a memoir by Leslie Jameson. The enigmatic title is actually more straightforward than not when you consider the subjects she covers in this latest book. A difficult breakup of a marriage, an emergency sort of breaking open when she gives birth to her daughter, the feeling of being split into various roles as a single mother who must feed and clean and care for her baby daughter. Her own parents' divorce gives a shape to her understanding of life at this stage. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. In her short 12-word poem, So Not to Be Modeled, Bernice Zamora proclaims, My divisions are infinite. That is, that to be splintered into numberless slivers and shards is still to be. Leslie Jameson knows something of this, as we see in her latest book, Splinters. How is one wholly present as a mother during a divorce? How is one wholly present as a professor during a time of motherhood? How is one wholly present in the explosive and exciting possibility of new romance while haunted by all the other losses? Leslie Jameson shares a powerful story about experiencing the breakdown of a marriage as a new mother while still being a professor and writer, a recovering alcoholic who has also struggled with an eating disorder. And one phase of this survival also includes COVID-19's descent on our world. Through it all, Jameson wonders, would every moment of our happiness carry grief in its veins? Is her life only about feeling broken, broken open, bereft, haunted by what was or can never be? Perhaps, she says, being haunted was its own uncanny abundance. I spoke to Leslie Jameson about her memoir, Splinters. Here's our conversation. The book is called Splinters. It's an all-too-appropriate title. It might not be so self-evident that it's a book about motherhood and as much as it is about your divorce and many other things, splinters, but can you tell us why this title is actually quite appropriate, even for a book about motherhood? So the book is the book is about the first few years of my daughter's life. And my hope in writing the book was that I could somehow p- capture the intense simultaneity of grief and joy that I felt in this process of falling in love with my daughter, who I'm still falling in love with to this day, and grieving the end of my marriage. And I was really interested in the ways that grief and joy sit side by side in the days of a life, um, and the ways that sort of regret and hope can feel really tangled together. And I think that everybody has lived through some version of that entanglement, whether it involves the particular experiences of motherhood, marriage, divorce, or not. And I wanted the title Splinters to capture this sense of things falling apart, certainly the sense of things splintering and breaking open, but also the ways that experiences, even especially painful experiences, can lodge inside of you and in some way even become part of you and that that can feel difficult, but that it's also part of what makes you. It's part of what builds you. It's part of what allows a person to keep transforming and changing shape. And the the last thing I'll say about splinters is that it's a description of some of the emotional content of the book in that way, but it's also a way of talking about the form of the book, the form 
lives in these sort of very sharp, whittled moments of experience, um, these these little pockets of of prose. And so to me, in that way, the book is also built of splinters. Yeah, so it might not be so self-evident on the surface, but it's a pretty perfect title. And your previous books include a novel, The Gin Closet, but also other works of nonfiction, uh, The Empathy Exams, The Recovery, Make It Scream, Make It Burn. Those other works of nonfiction combine, yes, the personal essay, but also like literary criticism, biography, and other forms of nonfiction. But Splinters is your first memoir, and I, I found it so interesting to see how it's been described by other outlets and on online that it's this is the first straight memoir. So I'm wondering about that for you, even though Splinter still includes elements about art and artists that I really enjoyed. It is a memoir. How was that for you in terms of the writing process or in terms of how you are thinking about your writing life, your sense of yourself as a writer, and about this particular book as a memoir being out in the world, like to be a memoirist, I think is is something kind of different from reporting on something else or someone else. So how was that for you in terms of your process or even in terms of how you're preparing to experience readings and events with the book, knowing that people out there in the audience have read this memoir about your life? Oh, so many things to say. Another great question. I think you know, one thing that I found to start maybe from the end of your question, one thing that I found over the years in in making art, in putting writing onto the page that draws from my own life is that you might think that that would mean that my interactions with people when that art goes into the world feel very much somehow about my life. Like, oh, I've put my life out there and now my life exists between us in this kind of profound, inescapable way. But actually what I've found is that when you make art from what you've lived, it often feels like an invitation to the people who've read it to share their lives, often quite personal parts of their lives with me. So that often the conversations I'm having with people when I go on the road, when I read in bookstores, when I do events, when I'm talking to people in the signing line, one of the things I love is that actually most of the time those conversations are about their life, not my life. But I think that is enabled by the fact that they've felt this sense of intimacy that I think can always happen through literature, but I think it can happen with a particular kind of acuity when the materials of that literature are materials that you you know the author lived. It kind of opens up this incredible space of communion. So I actually feel like I get to know and learn a lot about other people, about strangers when I'm on the road. And, and I, I, I truly actually really love that part of it. And I think it happens more immediately and more readily and a bit more deeply because of the, the personal nature of the work. I think, you know, every time I work on a new project, every time I'm embarking on a new project, the project in certain ways teaches me what it needs to be. Um, when I was writing the essays that became the empathy exams or the essays in my second collection, Make It Scream, Make It Burn, the questions that I was asking in those essays, so questions like, you know, what happens when we encounter the pain of other people? Can we ever fully imagine the interior lives of other people? Um, how do we follow our obsessions towards community or towards isolation? Like those questions 
invited me to kind of come at them from many different directions, to think about my own life, to interview other people and talk to them about their lives, to be an art critic, to be a literary critic. There was this sort of multivalent way that those questions seemed to be asking me to answer them. And with this project, I felt almost immediately that the book was teaching me what it was and what this book was, was very immediate. It was very close to my body, to my daughter's body, to the days of our lives. It, this book believed from the very beginning in ordinary daily moments as sites of profundity, making the pancakes in the morning, walking through a cold winter day with my baby strapped across my back, like showing up for work with my bag full of pumping supplies. Like this book knew from very early on that it wanted to live very close to one particular experience. And that experience happened to be my life. Um, <laughs> and so I think there was a way that the, the the rhythms of the book, that it existed in these sort of like sharp, almost pencil points of experience, um, very distilled, very whittled. Um, the fact that it, it kept this very close focal distance to my own subjectivity, to my emotional life, to the kind of sensory materials of my days, all of that felt like part of the experience I wanted to give a reader, which was an experience of of intimacy and proximity. Um, and that the 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 forms of of many of the essays I'd written, which were more kind of polyvocal and multi-directional and kind of coming at a question from many angles, they 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 didn't feel in service of that particular texture of intimacy that I knew I wanted this book to evoke. Well, you know, they say that with nonfiction, the more specific the detail, the more universally appreciated it, it can be for the reader. And I have to tell you, my daughter is 26 years old, but I have to tell you that reading this book about some of the things you experienced from the emergency C-section to the nursing to the the baby not latching, not latching on and et cetera. Oh my gosh, it just the resonances are so strong. So I imagine, I can only imagine these audiences for your readings that you will be in conversation with so many people about so many resonances about, and not just about that, but about so many other things. I mean, that doesn't even scratch the surface of where I would look up from the book and be like, oh my gosh, this is my life. <laughs> and um, there is that, you know, that proximity, as you say, in that intimacy here, where we really get to see the the joy and and the grief, the, the good times, and then the challenges and the struggles as well. And one of those struggles had to do with COVID. I have a very clear memory from back in the spring of 2020 of reading your article in the New York Review of Books about being down with COVID and being holed up in your apartment with your baby during that time. And I remember this very visceral response that I had. This was so early on in the pandemic. And then pretty soon there were more pieces in the New York Times about your experiences and even about the nostalgia that can come from looking back on those experiences. But then reading about COVID and splinters became something else entirely because it's a little later in the book and we've come through so much about the demise of your marriage, the difficulties and challenges of giving birth and early motherhood and your ongoing recovering from alcohol and all of the things that woke up about your own childhood and your parents' marriage. In other words, 
COVID is a part of your splinters story. So I, I wonder if you can talk about what comes to the surface for you today to think about COVID as part of this story. You know, I think in a way it feels so connected to the last question because one of the things that feels most important to me, it's like one of my North stars when I think about writing from my own life, it's like I'm never writing an experience just because it happened. Uh, first of all, because I think so many of the things that happened to me, um, it's not necessarily that I think they're extraordinary or or um, more extraordinary than what anybody else has lived. But it's always that the experience, I always include an experience because it can serve some kind of emotional purpose. And I think in this book, the COVID era, the area of the early pandemic with my daughter, when essentially it was the two of us like holed up in a small Brooklyn apartment. Um, I was sick with COVID. She wasn't sick, thankfully. Um, it, it had a very particular emotional role to play in the arc of the book. So the book is divided into three sections, milk, smoke, and fever. And the first section is roughly the first year of my daughter's life when my marriage was still intact. The second and that kind of feeling of intense communion, just like our bodies in certain ways still felt like one body, like the all of the all of the together togetherness of motherhood, but trying to figure out like who am I still in this state of new motherhood? What parts of me are gone? What parts of me remain? What parts of me have been transformed? And then the second section, smoke, is really looking at the kind of rupturing of my domestic life and the attempt to build a new life in the aftermath. And then fever, the last of those three sections, is, is, is the section that takes place during the COVID era. But the emotional work it's doing is kind of like after my whole life broke down and broke open in certain ways in the aftermath of my marriage, fever and COVID is sort of charting me and my daughter coming back into this very intense little dyad where we just like were each other's worlds again. Um, and so insofar as the book is really thinking about how parenting is both an, an intense act of communion, but also involves these sometimes painful, sometimes exhilarating acts of individuation where the parent is like being becoming separate from the child and the child is becoming separate from the parent. Um, I think I was really interested in the crucible of COVID quarantine as this space where we were so tightly bound up together and how were we sort of witnessing and experiencing our two selves as both connected and distinct in that togetherness. So for me, COVID in the context of the book um, was a way to think about these questions of like, who am I in motherhood? Where do I end? And where does my daughter begin? Where does my past self end and my present self begin? Um, so I, those were some of the questions I was asking of that experience of, of quarantine. But um, I totally agree with you that like the same experience can probably do all kinds of different emotional work depending on what, what story you're telling it inside of. Well, right now I'm thinking about your daughter playing with the cleaning products, you know, sort of diapering the cleaning products mm -hmm. and all of those details where uh, she was just being a kid playing and trying to get your attention and um, so many emotions there. I mean, some of it was, you know, some of it made me chuckle and smile a little bit about how she just kept on in her 
babyism, you know, just being a baby. But I'm glad you mentioned the sections uh, in the book because the preface to each section is like, um, we get to see what you were Googling. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Even that was very resonant in some interesting ways for me. I I'm constantly Googling things like how old is, you know, the celebrity? I'm just sort of keeping track <laughs> of, of celebrities' ages for, uh, lately. That also gave us a look into your life to be able to see uh, what you were questioning or thinking about or wondering about or worrying about. You do write about having to take your daughter to conferences or even to, you know, during COVID to Zoom meetings and have her present even in your classes. That brought a particular kind of exposure to you too about a great many things, not the least of which is that you were a mother doing this mostly alone a lot of the time. I, I think our our privilege as members of, you know, of academia doesn't account still for all the ways that life can still create situations like these where we have no choice but to cart the carrier or roll the stroller along to the next meeting or the next class or or the next reading. To say nothing of the fact that part of the time you were still nursing your baby and she was quite young. So these few years later now, how do you look back today and consider how how do you think about those days when you when you think about what went on and all that you were trying to juggle and manage? First of all, thank you for bringing up those Google search prose poems. I think of them as as like poems made of, of Google searches. I, maybe they, I don't know whether they're poems or not, but they're definitely made of Google searches. And you know, I was thinking about them as almost a modern version of the, I think they called them arguments, but these almost like plot summaries that would exist at the beginning of old Western novels. Cormac McCarthy also uses them at the beginning of the chapters in Blood Meridian, but um, mm -hmm. where you sort of get these like little fragments about what's going to happen next. And I thought of the Google searches in a way as a way of signaling in this kind of very lyric, sometimes just more subjective and uh, opaque way. Like here's, here's what's ahead. Um, but I also thought of them almost as like transcriptions from confessional booths, because I think mm -hmm. often we, we do bring these very personal questions to Google. Like we want it to answer, you know, where is this restaurant? Sure. But we also want Google to tell us sometimes like how to live our lives or like what to do <laughs> next. And I was really moved. I just kind of always been moved by the, that tender bewilderment that we can bring to Google searches. So I wanted those those poems also to hold that sense of yearning. Like I just want somebody Google to tell me what to do. And and there's a moment in the in the book itself where I get really anxious about somebody using my computer because I'm thinking what if they what will autocomplete tell them about my inner life you know if they're trying to google something um but you know you're so right about these uh both about privilege and the ways that privilege and necessity kind of still live can live tangled up together in the same life and you know these moments where we're where there's there's no way to keep all the all the traffic lanes of life separate. You know, sometimes it can feel like this 
vertigo inducing code shifting where you're sort of toggling back and forth between like, I've been teacher all day and now I'm trying to be mother. And, you know, where's the part of me that like, could ever imagine being a lover and like, you know, part of me still feels like a daughter who just wants my mom to take care of me. And like, sometimes those selves all feel very separate from each other, but so much of the time they're really forced into close proximity. Like you said, we know we're taking this stroller to the, to the meeting or my daughter is, you know, trying to serve everybody little wooden cups of rainbow tea in my (laughs) faculty meeting on the zoom screen, you know? So, um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the ways that the self, anybody's self is, is, you know, a kind of infinite guest house of selves, um, (laughs) where, you know, you're just, you've got all the different roles you play are living inside of you and you've got all of your past versions of self living inside of you like little Russian nesting dolls and these dreams of future selves and I think so many of the moments that feel most electric to me and most worth writing are moments where those selves are in some kind of collision or there's some kind of friction between them or one self interrupts the other self the teacher self is sort of interrupted by the mother self or the you know the daughter calling upon the mother self to be <laughs> present. And I think those moments of of interruption are kind of like really revealing glitches or like really useful little um, rips in the fabric where you get to see something about the, the mess of a person in there and all of their conflicting kind of debts and desires. You know, when I was reading your book, I kept thinking about this poem by a poet named Bernice Zamora, a Mexican-American writer, and she wrote this, it's like, you know, a 12-word four-line poem, something like that, and it it's something like, I'm not just two things, Mexican-American, and she has this line about, my divisions are infinite. Mm. And I kept thinking about that, that line as I read your book. You know, your your book shows us, reminds us that even if we're broken apart from a divorce or from the many ways we're we're trying to serve so many roles, our infinite divisions, mother, teacher, artist, etc. There's a void in our life still for love, for affection, for attention. So I find it, I don't know, ignorant or disingenuous, and I'm not sure which one would be worse when people might not realize that this is still something a woman feels, even if she's going through a divorce, even if she has a baby, the world sometimes seems ill-equipped to allow women to still experience desire or the need to dress up or go on a blind date. It's not frivolous. It's not selfish it's a very human thing but i wonder how you think these parts of your memoir could be received about how you went on and and had love affairs mm-hmm. and what is your expectation to this criticism that hey you should only be thinking about the baby and nothing and no one else yeah i'm really grateful for that question um it makes me think about 
Well, a couple things. It makes me think about this beautiful essay in my friend Esme's book, Esme Weijun Wong, her book, The Collected Schizophrenias. Um, she has an essay about her relationship to fashion and style and how important fashion has been for her through, you know, an incredibly complex and difficult journey through mental health struggles. And she writes about that very tension that you sort of briefly describe that it can feel incoherent or somehow contradictory to see a woman invested in style when she's you know, struggling or falling apart. Um, but I'm really interested in all the ways we try to put ourselves together, <laughs> like literally and emotionally when we're falling apart. Because in some sense, like every day we're falling apart and putting ourselves back together. And of course, sometimes that can feel more cute. Sometimes life feels like it's falling apart in a big and undeniable way. Um, but always, I think there's some way in which we both feel like we're disintegrating and trying to kind of rebuild ourselves into something like slightly new or at least something survivable. Um, and so I'm really interested in the kind of tangible forms that can take how choosing an outfit for the first time you're coming back to work after maternity leave can actually feel like a really big deal, even though somebody else might call it frivolous or inconsequential. I'm really interested in the ways that, you know, um, you might be really drawn to going to a beautiful place as a way of coming into a different sense of, of being um, after a difficult time. Um, I have a, there's a moment in the book where a friend of mine says, after I've told him that I'm sort of suspicious of my own relationship to beauty, like that I, in the first year of my daughter's life, I felt like I became obsessed with beauty. I was obsessed with making her room beautiful. I was obsessed with taking her to museums where we could like imbibe beauty all the time. And he said, you know, maybe beauty is a way that you feel more present. Maybe beauty helps you feel present in your own life. And I think that beauty is a sort of antidote to disassociation or beauty is an antidote to just um, wanting to flee your own life, whatever form that takes. For me, it took the form of getting like blackout drunk for a really long time and until I stopped doing that. Um, but fleeing my own life has found other forms to take too. But that idea is beauty, beauty is a way to be present was a really interesting idea to me. And I think kind of gets to this idea of how we can find a kind of grounding or meaning physical or aesthetic things that other people might dismiss. One thing I appreciate about your memoir is what we learn about your mother, including these beautiful words and your acknowledgments of the book. What does your mother think about your memoir? She, she, yeah, she, she loves it. You know, my mom is, is such a supporter of my life and my work. And it almost, you know, at a certain moment in the memoir, I say, you know, it would be tautological to say, I, I feel shaped by my mother's love because I just have no sense of self apart from that love. I'm so fully composed of her love. I'm so fully like created by her love. Um, so, you know, her support for this book feels like just the latest iteration of a lifetime of support. And she also supports me in a thousand tangible and concrete ways. Um, you know, she's taking care of my daughter. Um, when I have 
traveled for work. She's, you know, she's just helped both of us um, navigate like our lives and our bond with each other and, and all of it. I mean, she's, but I will say that I think one thread of this book that was, you know, I didn't imagine necessarily my relationships with my parents being part of this book at all when I sat down to write it. But like I said earlier, books kind of teach you what they are and maybe you know some of it from the outset. Like I knew this book was going to be about motherhood. I knew this book was going to be about the specific experience of mothering through this big life rupture of my divorce. But I didn't know that this book was going to cast its glance backward a little bit at my own childhood and how my parents' marriage and divorce shaped me and how my relationships with both of them shaped me. And one thing that I ended up writing into was my relationship to my mother's working life, you know, that my mother was a very present mother and a very loving mother, but she also really valued and committed herself to her career. Her career is very different from mine. Her career is in public health and most of her work during my childhood was um, focused on the developing world. Um, but she, you know, so she would take, she took a, a, th a three week trip to research trip to West Africa when I was nine months old. And when I look back at that now, I feel so grateful to her, not only for all the kind of predictable ways one might feel grateful to a mother, like grateful that you took care of me. I'm grateful that you loved me so well. I'm grateful you made me feel like I was enough, you know, in this world that is essentially trained to teach us that we're not enough. But I'm also grateful to you for showing me that you could go away and you could be part of things that didn't have to do with me and that that was not the same thing as neglect or abandonment that to have a life that is larger than your child is 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 not compromising what you're giving your child it can actually be part of what you do give your child like this in in the case of her career always always I grew up with this sense of the world as a fundamentally unequal and unjust place and a sense of kind of each of us has to figure out how we're accountable to that injustice and she had her ways and they are they are multiple and they run deep of kind of showing up for the world as like a citizen beholden even especially to the strangers she's never met but I think I grew up with this sense of like one has to be committed on many scales of living, many scales of identification. Um, and that that feels like a, a, a real gift to me to show, to show me that a mother could work and still feel fully present, to show me that one's values can live inside the home and also beyond the home. Um, so that was one thread of, of gratitude and narration that ambushed me a little bit when I was putting the book together, but now feels like a core part of its DNA. Well, this is a terrible question, I think, to ask you, put you on the spot. But years from now, when your daughter reads this book, what do you hope she will understand about you? I, more than anything, I hope she understands how much I've learned from her, really, from when she was very, very young. I feel like I have observed her ways of being alive and what she's noticed and what she's delighted in. and how she's kind of developed a consciousness in relation to the world. And I feel like I'm, I'm perpetually her student. And <laughs> I try to document that in the book. And I hope that when she reads it, she, she sees that and feels it. 
Leslie Jameson, thank you so much. What an honor and what a thrill to get to talk to you today. Well, thank you so much, Yvette. It's really, really such a pleasure. Your your questions are so thoughtful and your engagement with the book just obviously runs so deep and it's a gift. It's a gift to hear it. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Leslie Jameson is the author of Splinters. It's published by Little Brown. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Jacob Rizzotti composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.